Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Today, we are continuing with our series which is titled A Gospel-Centered Urban Church. We've been doing it now for the past three months, and I think this month of November is going to be the, the last month that we will conclude that series. Now, what we've been doing in that series is that we've been taking what we consider as the identity of City Church, and we've been trying to break it down or trying to expound on the different aspects of, of that identity. So we spent the first month looking at what it meant to be gospel-centered, and then the following month, which was the month of October, we looked at the, the theme there, urban, but we related that to mission because we find ourselves as a church in an urban setting, and that is, what we are, that is the setting that we are called to, to become missionaries. And this month, we're looking at the word church, and in that sense, we're looking at community. And you heard when Yemi was expounding that this month, we're, we're basically trying to emphasize the aspect of community. So last, we began the aspect of community last week. And last week, Femi took us through Acts chapter 2, where he wanted us to see what a united community actually looks like by looking at the church, the early church in the book of Acts. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a, not so much of a deviation or a tangent, but it's more about trying to show what the essence of community really is. And that is why we're taking the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, um, this chapter that we've read this morning is one of those chapters that you could probably take it on its own and it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and you don't think about anything else except that what the words we've read this morning, you would, um, you'll be able to make a lot of sense out of it. In fact, when I was um, in the UK, I think I attended a wedding where it wasn't just the definition of love that was actually read out. It was pretty much the entire chapter, at least the first half of the chapter, starting from where Paul starts, where Paul says, if I, um, had, the, if I had tongues of men or of angels, you know, all of that was read in a wedding service. And, you know, the, the, re, the reaction to that kind of reading is always very nice. It's always, oh, this is very good. I like, you know, and that's the way to look at it. So if it's read on its own, it can be taken and be understood perfectly. But when you think about it, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That phrase, if you're familiar with your Bibles, carries a lot of, carries a lot of meaning. If it's 1 Corinthians, it means that it's a letter written by someone, Paul, to a church, the church in Corinth. Chapter 13 says that there are 12 chapters before it, and there are perhaps some chapters after it, three chapters. And that there are specific things, if it's a letter that has been written, that the author of the letter wants to communicate to his audience specific things that both the audience and the writer of the letter are familiar to. So, by the time you start to take a look at all these other things surrounding the chapter, when you look at the fact that Paul is addressing certain things within the Corinthian church and he's trying to answer certain questions and he's trying to address certain themes, you begin to see that it is perhaps important for us to look at some sort of background. So, I want to spend some time this morning talking about the queen. And you're wondering, what is this guy talking about? Which queen? <laughs> but here we say that content is what? King. And context is what? Queen. 
So I want to spend some time this morning talking about the background. So this might take us on a little bit of a tangent, but while I start to talk about this, I would like you to think of some parallels that you can identify with, right? I'm going to talk about, let me, let me begin with the city of Corinth, for instance. As I talk about the city of Corinth, perhaps think of a city that you know, a city that is close to your heart, a city that you have visited in recent times, a city that, you know, is very dear to you. So basically, Corinth, the city of Corinth, was a major city in the province of Greece. It was a very big city, but it was a very small city in terms of landmass. So big in terms of the kinds of things that happened there, commercial city, you know, urban city, in that sort of sense. But it was very small, only about four miles wide. In fact, the way Corinth was actually positioned, you had the northern part of Greece and the southern part of Greece on this side, and then you had a very narrow island or a narrow isthmus that was only about four miles wide, and that's where Corinth was actually. So essentially, the way Corinth was positioned, and the reason why it was a major city was that if you wanted to travel from the north of Greece to the south of Greece, you had to pass through Corinth, and vice versa. But also, if you were carrying cargo from the east, which is probably Rome, towards Asia, which is on the west, you will find that it was easier for you to actually transport your goods to Corinth, take the goods out of the ships, move them four miles across onto another ship on the other side of the harbor. So essentially, it placed Corinth in such a unique position that they found themselves as the main trade routes between Rome and Asia. But at the same time, if you wanted to travel within the province of Greece there, you still had to pass through Corinth. It was a huge city. It was a densely populated city. It was a city that had a lot of talented people. It was a city that was booming with industry. It was a city that was basically what people would call a commercial city. If you, if you came to Corinth, you didn't come to Corinth to live. You came to Corinth to do what? To make it. Are you thinking of any city at, at, at the moment? If you came to Corinth, you came because you wanted to do, you came there to make money. You were driven by success. The environment enabled all of that. In fact, the environment was such that because it was such a commercial city, people were always innovative, thinking of things to do to improve their circumstances or the things around them. So there was one thing that bound the people of Corinth together, and it was this desire to make it. Everybody wanted to have some sort of success. Of course, you know what follows a city like that. Of course, there are a lot of good things. Lots of good things. So there is innovation. There is intelligence. There is, there is pure will. You know, there's lots of people who are driven to do things. And of course, when people are driven like that, you have a lot of results. But at the same time, there were a lot of negative things as well. Corinth was a city that was pretty much known as the center of sex in the sense that it's there was so much sale of, of course, that, that kind of city, you can imagine what it brings by the time people congregate in that sort of densely populated area. In fact, there was a verb at the time that people would use to say, um, to mean certain, neg or connote negative thoughts. If you wanted to say that a city or people, a set of people were very depraved, you would say Corinthianized. So if you wanted, you would say these people were Corinthianized. That means that they were, they were vastly depraved in the kinds of things that they did. It was in this city that God told Paul to continue to preach the gospel and not be afraid because as God said, I have many people in this city. This was after Paul had just come from being beaten, beaten almost to a pulp. Of course he was weary and he was thinking, am I coming to this place to do? Given the way the setup was, given the kind of hardships he would have had to go through there, and God told him, I have many people in this city and do not be afraid for your life. And Paul stayed there at least one and a half years when he planted this church. But it's not just about 
Paul planting this church in Corinth was also the fact that if you think about the city, then you have an idea of what the church looked like. If you think about this city that was vastly commercial in the sense that they were always driven for one thing. It was always about making money or making it big or making some sort of um, success story. And you think about the fact that what comes with that is both giftings and a lot of negative things. You would realize that that's the same thing that you have in the Corinth church as well. These are the kinds of people that came out of the, Corinth, that came out of the city and into the, the church. And this is what you know, Paul says of them in, Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 9. He says that, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you are beginning to see what this church actually looked like. Essentially, what I'm trying to draw your attention to is that the church, the church in Corinth was a vastly gifted church as a result of where they were placed, as a result of the city that they found themselves in. They were vastly gifted. And we see a reflection of their gift if you read, from, if you read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. You see the fact that they were gifted with things like knowledge, eloquence, people who could speak, people who could discern certain things. When people are talking, they are able to, you know, say whether this, what this person has said is right or wrong. You know, that's one of the giftings that they had. But fortunately or unfortunately, they also had lots of issues. And that is the context in which this letter, 1 Corinthians, is actually written. Paul writes this letter to deal with many of the issues that the church in Corinth actually had. And I, I want to believe that Paul had a bit of a conundrum here because this is a church that was very dear to him. If you consider the way God actually spoke to him personally about planting this church, if you consider the, the time it took him to plant this church and the fruit that he would, be, he would be seeing coming from this church, he would see the people actually performing or actually acting in a lot of the gifts that he knows that some other churches may not even have. But he could also see a lot of the problems and the issues that he had. And that's what you see as you read through the book of 1 Corinth. Paul is actually trying to address some of those issues. So in chapters 1 to 4, for instance, he addresses the issue of division over preachers. So some of them were thinking, ah, this guy speaks a little bit better than this guy. So I think uh, this is the right guy. Let me follow him. He addresses the issue of sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6. Marriage and divorce in chapter 7. Issues to do with idols and how to handle idols. Remember that this was a city that was highly idolatrous. And he deals with that in chapters 8 to 10. And then... By the time you get to chapter 11, he's talking about corporate worship, and he talks about some practical things that you can do during corporate worship. And then we come to chapters 12 to 14, where Paul is dealing with a specific issue of miraculous or spiritual gifts. Now, it is within these three chapters, 12 to 14, that we now find chapter 13 inserted somewhere in the middle. And it is good for us to understand why Paul actually puts it in there. So Paul basically starts in chapter 12, and he says to them that... Um, the practice of this, the way they've been practicing spiritual gifts, that there was a problem with it. But he doesn't just answer it by saying, this is bad. This is what you're supposed to be doing. What he does is he first of all tells them that, listen, don't you know that when you are in Christ, you are actually a body? You cannot now start saying that the leg is more important than the arm or that the head is more important than the finger. There is a unity that ought to bind you together 
And that is the thing that you should be concentrating on, not saying that one aspect or, one or the other aspect is better than the other. This is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And he's saying to them, for instance, towards the end, he says, oh, you think that it's all about gifts? Do you think it's all about gifts? Let me show you something that is more important. Let me show you a more excellent way. And then you have chapter 13. And then you have chapter 14, where he begins to deal about the practical ways in which they can use the things he's telling them to actually work out the workings of the gifts in the church. But before he starts to talk about that in chapter 14, he says, pursue the way of love. And that is where you now find 13 inserted between 12 and 14. So I've titled this sermon, Love's Way. And basically, it's hopefully we'll try and draw out certain things that would help us understand the fundamental nature that love plays in the community that calls itself Christian. So I'm going to, oh, Femi is not here today. So I can have 16 points. In fact, that's what we're going to have. I'm going to try and cover this thing in 16 points, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'll try and see if I can do this in three points. So the title is Love's Way. I'll try and see if I can cover it with these three headings. Love's Way as an Indicator. Love's Way with Self. And Love's Way to Heaven. Love's Way as an Indicator. Love's Way with Self. And Love's Way to Heaven. Let me start with Love's Way as an Indicator. Verses 1 to 3. In 2010... There was, I'm an engineer, so I'm going to use an engineering illustration. So pardon me if I start to say a, little, a lot of jargon. In 2010, there was an incident that happened in the oil and gas industry. There, it was in the Gulf of Mexico that this vessel, this huge, humongous vessel, actually exploded. And this vessel was actually on what you call deep water, so over 3,000 feet of, of um, water depth. And it was actually doing some drilling activities to explore oil, right? And so. It's a very delicate operation, the way these things actually work. If you send your pipes or your tubes down, they are going down through water, but then they have to go even further down through the crust of the earth, through the earth, right? And that is where you actually find oil. But the thing is that the whole drilling process takes such a long time. And the reason it takes such a long time is because while you're actually trying to get through the, through the soil, you have to be pumping out some of the soil that you're taking out, because you can't get there until, you're not, it's not like you're displacing the soil. You have to go through, take some soil out, and then keep on going down. To do this, you have to also pump some sort of fluids inside to help, help you do the process, basically. Let me, not, let me not go too much into detail. But essentially, the reason that explosion happened was because people that were doing this work were actually looking at some pressure gauges. And by looking at those pressure gauges, they thought everything was fine underwater. It's not everything was looking all hockey-dory. And that is why some of them gave an instruction to actually replace the, flu the drilling fluids that they had there with, with seawater. And this thing took over a couple of days before you actually had the back pressure of gas that came up and then eventually the explosion that killed over 11 people. What happened? By the time they did investigations and everything, they found out that what they were looking at was the wrong meter. They were looking at a meter that was giving them some information about something else, and they thought that that information was the pressure that they were supposed to be seeing in the well. Let me give you another example, similar example. If you're driving uphill, say you're driving up a, up, up a mountain, for instance, and you're driving and you're pushing the car, and the car is actually struggling, and maybe you're beginning to notice some fumes coming out from the engine, and you look to your left on the dial where the, the um, engine temperature is, 
and the thing is down, it's like it's cold. You're saying, oh, this thing is, is fine, there's nothing wrong. And you're still pushing, 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 pushing. Eventually, the, the, the engine blows up. And then you look and realize that the dial that tells you where the temperature of the engine is is on your right, it's not on your left. <laughs> Essentially, what is happening is that you are using the wrong indicator to tell you the condition of affairs. The guys in the, in the deep water horizon were using the wrong indicator to tell them what the affairs were underwater. And the driver who was driving up here was also using the wrong indicator to tell him the, the condition of the engine. This is what I think Paul is talking about in verses 1 to 3 here. This is what I think he's talking about primarily here when he's saying that if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. He didn't say that I am less immature than my brother. He didn't say that I... I begin to amount to nothing. No, he says, I am nothing. Let me alarm you a bit. What Paul is saying here is that you can be gifted by the Spirit of God. So you were not hearing me all this while? So I have to start again. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, what Paul is saying here very shockingly. Imagine, first of all, that you have listened to this passage before and you thought, oh, what a nice passage. Let me say now that the Corinthians hearing this passage being read to them, I want to bet that some of them, were, their reaction was, how dare he? How dare he say something like this? What Paul is actually saying here is that you can be gifted by the Spirit of God, even with miraculous gifts, and yet you are not a Christian. You can be highly gifted with all kinds of gifts, not just spiritual gifts, not just miraculous gifts, all kinds of gifts, but yet you are not a Christian. You can speak in tongues. You can be an excellent preacher. You can prophesy. You can heal people miraculously. You can be ready to give away all your money to the poor and still be spiritually nothing. Not just immature, but completely and utterly nothing. That's the alarming point of verses 1 to 3. Let me give you some biblical evidence. Do you remember Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 and following? Balaam in the New Testament was regarded as a wicked person. In fact, if you read through those chapters, you realize that it appeared that the guy was really trying to do things against God's will. Every, almost every time he looked like he was desperately trying to do something that was against God's will. But yet, what did God use him to do? The prophecies that Balaam gave were the things that prospered Israel, isn't it? How many times? About three times or thereabouts. The New Testament example that you can think about is Judas. God, Jesus Christ sent them out as a number and he gave them the power to do what? To even cast out demons, isn't it? To perform miracles in his name. But yet we know that Judas, his heart didn't belong to God. Perhaps the best example that I can give you is in Matthew chapter 7. And there we say... When people will come to God and say, Lord, Lord, um, did, I, did I not do many wonderful works in your name? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, what? I never knew you. 
away from me, you what? Evildoers. So, essentially, what Paul is saying here is that stop looking at the wrong indicators. If you're a tremendous preacher, if you have, you're gifted in, in one way or the other, if you're highly talented, if, you're, if you can speak in magnificent tongues, if you are able to heal people who are sick at the touch of your hand, those things are not the things that indicate whether you are a Christian or not, or your spiritual state. They are not. Paul tells us what the ultimate thing is, the better indicator to tell us what this, the state of our spiritual condition is, and it is whether you actually love. Let me stretch this a little bit more. Some of you might want to ask and say, are you trying to say now that it is only, that basically that you can't, it's only Christians that can actually do things that would show that they're gifted? Or how can you then tell me that God can actually gift people who are non-Christians? Because that's essentially what we are saying. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't have false gifts. We have false gifts. We have people that would perform, try to do things by the power of the devil, for instance. But that's not what we are saying here. We're saying that the Holy Spirit can actually help people who are not Christians, can actually gift people who are not Christians to actually do things. Let me give you some worldly examples. Imagine, imagine if the people that could be good parents were only Christians in this life that we live. Or the people who could be good therapists were only Christians. How, what a terrible world we're living in. If you find somebody who is a non-Christian and the person, by all accounts that we can see and we can tell, the person is actually a good parent, it is God that gifts that person that ability to be a good parent. Doctors, nurses, therapists, counselors, parents, they don't have to be Christians to be good. Engineers. Let me tell you three ways that I think that we can look at this. I asked you to think of a city that had parallels to Corinth. I'm going to assume that you thought of Nairobi. <laughs> but let's bring it back a little bit home. There are also many parallels between City Church and the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was a young church. City Church is a young church. The church in Corinth was in a city that was pretty much, by all respects, everything that you could call Lagos. How many, how many ports do we have in Nigeria? How many commercial ports do we have in Nigeria? Okay, how many well-known commercial ports do we have in Nigeria? Okay, we only have one place in Apapa that I know, that I know of. Eh? So at least we know that that, is, that makes Lagos a central place for people to bring in goods, isn't it? If you wanted to get goods across Nigeria, most of the time people will bring it in through Lagos. Lagos is considered to be the commercial nerve center of, of Nigeria, isn't it? And Lagos is what? densely, densely populated in a small land area. Have you seen the map of Lagos before? And they tell you 20-something million people are living here. Sometimes I don't think it's true. But that is where we find ourselves, City Church. The church in Corinth was highly gifted. There are highly gifted people in this church. But we must be careful, especially in the midst of where we find that we want to hold on to good doctrine. We want to hold on to doctrine that is true and pure. Sometimes we can get carried away with that and think that that is an indicator of how mature or how spiritual we are. And we have to be careful, careful about that. The best indicator for us here in City Church is how much we love one another. 
Number two, if you're here in City Church and you find yourself in some form of ministry, whether you are a paid staff of City Church or whether you're volunteering in one way or the other with the kids, with the music team, with the with guys playing instruments, with the guys at the back, whatever it is, there is a tendency for you to think, I am worth something because of what I do. Look at all the people that benefit from the things that I do. I must be worth something. If you think that way, you fall prey to the same problem here that Paul is drawing their attention to. You cannot be defined by the gifts that you have or by the expression of the gifts that you have. The best way to show or to indicate how much you are actually living a life that God wants you to live in a community is by how much you love others. Three, some of you are thinking, look, the way some of these guys sing in this singing, whatever, I can't sing like them. You know, I'm talentless. There is no gift that I have. There's nothing I can do. And that might lead you to start to think about how I wish I was as talented as this guy. How I wish I was as good a speaker as Femi. How I wish I could teach properly. In some strange way, you also fall prey to this same issue as well. Because in the same way, you are also identifying yourself with those gifts. You are saying that there is a certain way with which you mark your worth by the expression or by the having or not having of those gifts. The point of verses 1 to 3 is that love is the perfect indicator. Let's move on. Number two, love's way with self. Love's way with self. So someone might ask this. All this is well and good. I can accept that you can do all the miraculous things and not be a Christian. But are you saying that it is only a Christian that can love? Are you saying that only a Christian can exhibit the love that we have or that we, that we want to have here on earth? Well, the straightforward answer, without getting too much into any debate, is that that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is not saying that it is only a Christian that can love. In fact, let me, let me go to 1 John chapter 2, from verse 3 to 11, because that puts it very, very, that, that gives me a, a hint as to the best way to answer this question. 1 John chapter 2, from verse uh, 3 to 11. And it says that, We know that we have come to him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, okay, let me go to verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth, its, its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And then in verse 9, he starts to talk about whoever uh, um, hates his brother um, doesn't, is, 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 in, is in darkness and is not in light. So basically what, Paul is saying, what John is saying here is that if it is about love, you've always had this commandment from before. Everybody knows, at least to the very best of your ability, a parent knows that he ought to love his wife. You don't need Christianity to tell you that a parent, a parent ought to love his child. You see that in society. It was before Jesus Christ came, throughout the Old Testament, you see that that is the command that the Israelites were given, to love one another, to love their neighbors as themselves, right? It is not so much a Christian thing. But the thing that, that I think that is being driven by what we are looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that when you have been called to become a Christian, when you have encountered Christ, there is a new dimension of love that we ought to act in. It is a dimension that is, 
beyond just the old commandment. This is the reason why John says, it is, I'm not calling you necessarily to a, to, a, to a new commandment. It's an old commandment, but it is a new one that I give to you as well. Because there is a new and fresh way in which we look at it as a result of the fact that we have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. This new dimension of love is affected in three ways. Let me talk about two of them. Your relationship with others and your relationship with yourself. Now let's look at verses 4 to 7 again. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You know, one of the things that I think I, I can draw out from this thing here is that the two things that I want, to draw, I want to draw attention to in terms of how we can see this new dimension of love is that it has to do with the way we love others and the way we love ourselves. So relationship with others and relationships with ourselves. But in a very unique way, they are not... They're not, they are, they are, you, can dis, you can say that they are distinct, but they are very much connected. The way our relationship with, the way we find our relationship with ourselves is basically what will drive the relationship that we have with others. So if you go through all of these things that I just read through, love is patient, love is kind, and then it goes into a bunch of negative statements. Love does not envy, it does not, it's not boastful. You know the thing there that actually puts everything together? The thing that ties all those things together it is, in verse, it is in verse 5. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. You know, that is the riddle that solves every other thing. If you wanted to talk about one thing there and not talk about everything else, it is about the fact that love is not self-seeking. That has its repercussions in everything else, in whether you're patient or kind, whether you are slow to anger or not. And you know what? Why it's sometimes difficult for us to see or sometimes difficult for us to accept is because in the very nature of us as human beings, we are self-seeking human beings. See, my daughter, my daughter is three years old. At the time before, she, before her brother was born, everything we got was for her, right? If we buy anything, is Chizara's thing. So by the time something comes into the house, she's probably saying, ah, is it my own? Is it my own? Of course it's your own, you know? But by the time... Her brother started getting older and we started buying him toys. And she sees a particular toy and we're like, oh, it's not your own. The confusion on her face, you know, at the beginning stage, was, it was remarkable to watch. But like, what do you, is Daniel's own, it's not your own. And she says, no, it's not Daniel's own, it's my own. She just, it's just difficult for her to, have, to move away from that concept of this has always, these things have always been mine. And now it's supposed to be some, this thing is supposed to be somebody else's. It doesn't get, we don't get better as we grow older. We only get more sophisticated. Let me tell you how. At least I was a teenager. I'll tell you why. When we become teenagers, the reason we want to be away from our parents, so that's, that's the period where you want to be away from your parents, isn't it? You want, it's not so much of, oh, I, I like to be independent. It's about the fact that we don't want to be accountable to our parents. If we want to get out of the house, we always want to be away. We want to go and do our own thing. We don't want to be accountable to them because if we're accountable to them, that means we have to do certain things that they want us to do, which might be against our, our comfort, our perceived comfort at the time. As you get older, even as adults, it doesn't get better. It gets more sophisticated. If I come back from work and I'm telling my wife about a quarrel that I had in my office, 
or some misunderstanding that I had with somebody in my office. By the time I finish telling my wife, she's on my side. She's telling me, what rubbish, you know? She has not heard anything from the other guy. The question we should be asking is, what's that guy telling his own wife? You know, I'm, I'm only present, there is, this, there, is a, there is always a necessity for us to be self-justifying, regardless of whatever the situation is. We always want to justify ourselves before anything. Two people are in love. I gave this example in a gospel community a few weeks ago. Two people are in love, and one asks the other, do you love me? And she says, well, yes. Why do you love me? Well, because you're smart, caring, loving. You can throw down in the kitchen. You're funny. You have a way with words. You're very exciting to be around. You never complain about anything. You're always calm, never irritated. You always have the right thing to say. That's why I love you. And the person is probably grinning from ear to ear, you know. If it's a woman, she will love that kind of answer, you know. But what she should be asking is, so if I stop this thing, will you still love me? You know why? There's two things happening there. When you hear those things, there is a sort of justification or self-appeasement that you feel. You know, you're enjoying those accolades. You're not really investigating whether they are true. Oh, you're, you know, you, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're never irritated. You don't ask yourself, oh, am I really, is it true that I'm never irritated? You're just enjoying them. You know, you're satisfying yourself. But I'll tell you something shocking. As human beings, and I can say this about at least virtually every human being, we don't want to be loved like that. That is not what we crave in our innermost desires. We want to be loved simply for no reason. So that when these things that they say that we do very well fail, we are still loved. That is exactly what we want. So if both of those two things are actually self-seeking, both of those two things are actually self-justifying, aren't they? Because if you think about it, when you are hearing all those good things about yourself, it makes you feel good. But at the same time, at the innermost part of us, we want, to, we want people to love us despite our feelings. Let me talk about the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan here. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's a very, very famous parable. And one of the things that we see there is that um, we always, always talk about the story of the Samaritan that comes to the rescue of the person who is injured by the roadside. But we don't look at the background of that story where somebody actually comes to Jesus Christ and asks him a question. What you're having there is a, is a bit of a discourse. And the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is only an enabler of the discourse. So somebody asks a question. The, the man asks a question. Jesus Christ asks him a question back. When he answers, Jesus Christ answers his question. The man asks another question, and Jesus Christ then tells a story so that he can ask him a question. When the man responds, Jesus Christ now responds to the original question that he says. So I'll leave the first part of the, of the question. The second part is that, having asked Jesus Christ certain things about how, how does one inherit eternal life, the, the wise man now says, the Bible says that he was trying to justify himself, and then he asks, who is my neighbor? And then we have the story of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus Christ says, who of these, which of these people do you think was a neighbor to the man that was falling by the roadside. And he says, of course, the one who showed mercy on him. And he says to him, go and do likewise. You see, the problem is that we are always trying, even if we are doing righteous things, even if we are doing things that are righteous, we are always trying to self-justify ourselves. Let me move on. So you are saying to yourself, okay, but... If it's true that whether I'm being religious or irreligious, I'm always trying to self-justify. 
How can I know? Well, I'll tell you. It's in the next phrase right after self-justifying. It says, love is not self-seeking and love is not irritable. In fact, that word there, if you look at it in, in the NIV, it says, love is not easily angered. Right? By the way, as an aside, the Bible doesn't say that we should not... The Bible doesn't say that we never get angry. doesn't say that we should never get angry. In some other part of the Bible, it says we should be slow to anger. Here it says we should, be, we should not easily be angered. You know why? Because anger can be righteous. Especially, for instance, when you're fighting for the rights of someone, basic human rights of someone, for instance. It is righteous at that point in time to get angry. But the question you should be asking yourself is, if I want to have an indicator of whether I am self-seeking or not, when am I angry? Am I angry because of what somebody has done to me? Or am I able to display righteous anger, which is always fighting for somebody else? I don't have time, so I'm going to move on to the third one. Well, let me, let me spend some time between verses 4 to 8 again. You know, some time ago, I went through this chapter, a few years ago, and I think I made a mistake. I went through the verses, these verses between 4 and 8, or 4 and 7, and I kind of went through them as a checklist. You know, oh, if you're a Christian, you must be patient. You know, if you're a Christian, you must be loved. And that's, that's true. But here is where I ran into a problem. By the time you get to verse 7, love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Always? Always? How possible is that? Love never fails. Verse 8. You know, when we read this, first instinct was for you to start thinking about how to actually achieve that, how to actually get to a point where you are, you are exhibiting love that, never, that always perseveres. But the real truth is that we ought to read this and we ought to be caught to the heart. We ought to be broken. Because you know why? Because we immediately see that not only is this what we want or the way we want people to love us, it is also the way we ought to love as well. But we can't do it. So is Paul writing this thing here to just shame us or to make us see our inefficiencies? No. By the time you read this and you realize that this thing is not something that we can just do by our efforts. It's not something we can try and try and try to always persevere, to always hope, to always trust, to always believe in the good of others. You realize that it's pointing us to someone. This is the reason why Paul doesn't say the person who loves is patient. The person who loves is kind. He personifies love. Because before you can love in this Christian way, you have to meet with love. You have to have an experience with that love. Have you ever been loved like this? Your question would probably be, if somebody could love me like this, where the person is always trusting, the person is always persevering with me, regardless of what I do, maybe I'll be able to reciprocate. Maybe I'll be able to reciprocate. Well, you're not far from the truth. Yes, maybe you will be able to, but I'll tell you, somebody has. Somebody has already loved you in more ways than you can ever imagine. First John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He sent his one and only son into this world that we might live through him. How? How did that happen? 
by what Jesus Christ went through on the cross. Look at the words that Jesus uttered on the cross. Job would say, though he slay me, yet will I do what? Praise him. But that's not what happened. Jesus, God did not slay Job and Job continued to praise him. There's only one person who has done that, and that is Jesus Christ. He was slain, yet he still cried out, my God, my God. On the cross, he sees people who, were, who had a hand in his death and he says, Father, do what? Forgive them. He went through all of that simply because of who? Of you and of me. If you want to see love that is always patient, if you want to see love that always hopes, want to see love that always perseveres, look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Number three, love's way to heaven. In verse 10, it says that when completeness comes, or when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. The Greek word here, meaning completeness, is meaning completeness is to tell you on, which means the aim. Let me use an example of one of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller. He gives an example of a whale that is washed up on a beach. When the whale is on the beach, just washed up on the beach, that whale is still alive, right? You can see the tail, you know, flapping and kicking up dust. You can see some of its fins and all that. The reason why that whale is behaving that way is because it is not in the in the environment that it is supposed to be in, isn't it? As soon as you put that whale back into the sea, it becomes a powerful beast. The conditions that are necessary for the fullness or the completeness of that person are not on land, they are in sea. And so that is what that to tell you on there, that word completeness is actually saying. It's saying that when we get to the conditions where we will be fully expressed in the image of God, that is when we would see love at its purest form. It says we would see face to face. Face to face, how? Whose face? In fact, if you read that, part, that portion, it says that when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put foolish things aside. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. You know what? The mirrors those days were polished metal. So they're not the kind of mirrors that we have now where we see a, a, a better reflection of ourselves. They're polished mirrors. So what we're looking at in the mirror was really more or less a riddle. In fact, that's what the, the word here is actually connoting. That looking at your images, you're not seeing it fully as it ought to be. You know you can see pretty much what is there, but you're not seeing it as fully as it ought to be. But then we would see face to face. In fact, it says, now I know in part, then I will know fully as what? As I am fully known. What does that mean? What does that mean to be fully known? He's not saying here that I will fully know God even as God fully knows me. I'm not sure that's even possible. We are, God is the creator. We are creatures. Even in heaven, even by the time we get to the fullness, I don't think we will know God the way God knows us. Does God know everybody? Is he saying that the way God knows everybody is the way we are going to know ourselves as well? Maybe not quite. I'll tell you what it is. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that in the last days there were people coming and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we get to do great things? And Jesus Christ's response to them is what? I never knew you. That knowledge there is more than just a knowledge of knowing somebody fully. That knowledge there speaks about the love that God has for us. I'm telling you, 
there is a knowledge of ourselves that we would have on that last day that expresses what it is that God has done for us, that expresses how much God loves us. Let me give you another example. If Faye, for instance, had... No, I, I won't use Faye as an example. If somebody, if, if somebody else had $200, 200 naira to her name, and somebody asks to borrow that money, and she borrows that person, can you imagine the space between the time she borrows the money and when she returns it back, how she, the kind of anxiety she'll be feeling? But if Faye has millions of dollars, that's a better example, have you? If he has millions of dollars and somebody has to borrow $200 out of it, he is not going to fret if the, person doesn't, if the person is wasting time in returning it, isn't it? Why? Because she remembers her worth, isn't it? She remembers her worth. He's saying, oh, he's saying to me, oh, is she going to forget how much she's worth? No, she's not going to forget how much she's worth. But sometimes we forget how much we are worth, isn't it? We forget that we are worth more than some of the things that we, can, we want to scribble over sometimes. Has anybody angered you? Has anybody taken anything away from you? Has anybody made you so upset that you feel that the only response is to retort back to that person? Do you remember that God knows you? He knows you to the point that he has actually prepared something that all of these things that you're thinking about that appear to be negative will look like a dot in the eyes of, in, in light of the things that he has prepared for you. I'm going to give some concluding remarks now. If heaven is a world of love, then Christians become especially personal people. If we realize that heaven is a place where love is shown in its purest form between brother and brother, between human beings and human beings, then we will no longer be seeking for only gain every time. We will turn our attention from the quick book to personal people. We would always, always put people ahead of anything that we do people ahead of success, people ahead of every, any other endeavor that we might want to talk about if we know that heaven is a place of love. If heaven is a world of love, then what do you think hell is? In hell, there's always a joke about by the time you get to hell, all of the people, the people that you were uh, criminals with, you will see them in hell. You will not know anybody there. It is a vastly isolated place. If heaven is a world of love, hell is a place of terrible isolation. Some of us have already experienced some, some level of lovelessness in our lives. If you think about the contrast between heaven and hell, then you are driven to ensure that other people, at least at your own hands, do not experience that same lovelessness. One more application. I gave three categories earlier on. I talked about City Church as a whole and how we ought to think about ourselves, uh, how we ought to think about the right indicator, love being the right indicator for the way we know how we are doing spiritually. I talked about those who are gifted spiritually and how we, we ought not to identify ourselves by those gifts. I talked about those who perhaps may not be gifted. Let me say something again, um, finally, about those who may not be gifted. If you are not gifted or if you think you are not gifted in a certain way, let me tell you something. Gifts have limits. Femi said here the other day that no matter how, who was he using? I think he used um, uh, Ronaldo and Messi. And he said there's no, no matter how Ronaldo wants to, how Ronaldo thinks he is, he can never be as good a footballer as Messi is. Sorry. Uh, Rooney. Rooney. Sorry. 
I should stay in my lane, Abby. Yeah. No matter how good I am in basketball, I can never be as good as Steph Curry. Okay, so that, that's a better example. Sorry about the football. <laughs> so you see, the thing is that gifts have limits. But I'll tell you something now. You, anybody in this room, can be the most loving person this century has ever seen. There is no limit to how loving that we can be. Finally, if you're sitting here saying, this love that we're talking about, I have no understanding. I don't have it. I've never, I've never practiced it. I've never experienced it. I've never, I don't know what it is. Then I'll invite you to meet with someone. Because it is only after you meet with this someone, only after you've experienced this love, that is the only time you'll be able to express this love. The one who fully personifies love, the person of Jesus Christ, when you meet with Christ, I bet your life will change. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you help us to see your love. Help us to see your love in Jesus that did not fail so that we can begin gradually, slowly but surely, to give the love that does not fail to others. We ask you to help us, O Lord, where we have failed. Help us to repent so that we can live the lives that Paul is calling us to in this passage. Help us to be truly patient. Help us to be truly kind. Help us to always seek the good of others and to think of ourselves less but to think more about other people. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.